I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Anthony Bettini. Anthony is the CTO for White Hat Security, the leader in application security, enabling businesses to provide critical data, ensure compliance, and manage risk. Previously, Anthony ran Tenable Research, where Anthony joined via Tenable's acquisition of Flawcheck, a leading container security startup where Anthony was the CEO and founder. Before its acquisition by Symantec, Anthony was CEO and founder of AppAuthority, a leading mobile security startup and winner of the Most Innovative Company of the Year award at the RSA conference. In this episode, we discuss managing a remote team, web application security, DevStack, responsible vulnerability disclosure, artificial intelligence, how to focus your career, being a founder, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Anthony, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing very well. Doing very well. I hope you are surviving the uh, now ongoing pandemic. You know, we're kind of God knows how many weeks of this. But how is uh, how are you and your team kind of getting through all this? Yeah, so far, so good. I think, you know, we're experiencing many of the same challenges many, many of our customers, partners, and people around the world are. But but so so far, so good considering the, the challenge. So your current role is CTO at White Hat Security. So I'd imagine you were spending a good amount of time on the road, you know, meeting with with uh, product teams and customers. Um, I would I would imagine you're not doing very much of that these days. That is totally correct. Yeah, so I, I probably traveled about a two weeks a month, uh, month in month out, and now it's of course averaging zero. How has that kind of changed for you? You know, when you know I've asked some other folks, particularly that have been in. in you know, kind of sales leadership roles or CTOs that look a lot of times you have to get them, get in front of a customer, look them in the eye. There's still a lot of confidence we need when selling cybersecurity solutions where, you know, a CISO or a CIO will want to meet you in person. Has that had to, how have you adjusted to that in, in your team of trying to, you know, kind of really kind of in a sense, win customers over when you can't have that face to face? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, the customers have the same challenge, honestly. So, um, what, what you speak of obviously is correct. I mean, that that is the challenge and that we are going from a, a former norm to completely changed times. But I would say the same challenge is true on the customer side. You know, they are, they are getting used to not seeing their teams in person every day and uh, not seeing their vendors and partners and trusted partners together uh, in the same room, either during the selling process or you know, when there's a major incident or, or on time of renewal, all, all of these things, it's, it's different for the customer as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we're all just working through it. And you've, uh, you've certainly been doing cybersecurity now and information security for, for some time. Can you kind of walk us through? Cause it looks, you know, kind of looking at your, your history that you've been doing this for even before we even really had the term cybersecurity and it was still very IT focused. 
Yeah, I myself have been um, doing IT security or cybersecurity, depending on how you, you count it, probably since about 1998, um, primarily on the vendor side. Uh, I started at a company uh, called Notect, which was eventually acquired by Bindview, which eventually became Symantec, but did vulnerability assessment or had a vulnerability assessment product. Um, I wrote detection logic for the product. Um, so yeah, I've been doing this a long time and, and mostly on the cybersecurity software vendor kind of ISV side of things. Sure. And it looks like you've had a you know, good amount of, you know, uh, roles where you've done a good amount of security research and, you know, kind of looking at, I guess, what, what drew you to doing that as opposed to the many other things that anyone can do in cybersecurity? Yeah, I, I guess I've always liked problem solving. And I, I think of um, analyzing attacks or vulnerabilities or malicious code um, as some level of kind of a, a Rubik's Cube problem solving kind of thing. And so I've, I've spent a lot of my, my time on that. And, you know, the more you do something and get good at it, um, you know, opportunities show up to kind of move into people management roles over the same kind of functions. And so I've, I've just done that over time. And at this point in time, probably since 2004, I've been a people manager. So, it, you know, I'm, I'm way deep into that at this point, but, but always, always, always on uh, technical roles, technical teams and solving technical problems. So, um, you know, everyone likes different things. I, I certainly enjoy the work I do. Yeah, with that, I mean, do you do you find that you miss maybe some time that, or as much time that you would have with hands-on keyboard than you do with the people now? I guess what's what's the kind of dynamic that you feel between the two the two areas? Yeah, I I guess I try to um, keep uh, up to speed as best as I humanly can with. Um, using other people as a proxy, if that makes sense. And so I, I'll admit, I, I, I don't spend zero time hands-on keyboard. It's definitely not zero, but it's, it's pretty low. And, um, you know, I just have to, you know, help people with the challenges they have. And, um, you know, instead of trying to do the work myself, try to do 10 times as much work with a, uh, a 10 times bigger team kind of thing. And I, I find that very enjoyable because you, you can accomplish, you know, much larger, you can go attack much larger problems and solve them than, than one person could do alone. Sure. And, you know, what are some of those problems that you, you, you kind of currently working on your current role? You know, I think for me, I know White House Security is primarily for doing a lot of the kind of web application security hardening things around that. Um, but you know, what, what are some of the other things that you kind of do you have to see in your customer base and what you're, you know, again, those, those kind of problems that you're trying to solve. Yeah. I think there's lots of interesting things going on in white hat. Um, you know, one, one would be on application security. I would say the market's certainly moving towards, um, integrating application security into the software development lifecycle. So that means it's changes to our products, changes to how we optimize them, changes to how we integrate. On a business level with White Hat, um, we were acquired last year by NTT, one of the largest organizations in the world. So there's changes on that front. Um, and then just in technology in general, um, we see a, a movement towards AI 
being integrated with cybersecurity. And so, you know, combine all of these kinds of things like market level changes, technology changes, changes on the corporate side. You know, we're in a fast moving field um, or industry and, you know, lots and lots of exciting things happening at White Hat. I would imagine with, you know, so many folks now, you know, we've certainly seen a, a big shift of folks and organizations using remote everything, you know, whether it be telephony to web applications that uh, there's a, you know, even a greater need now as much as, as and ever really to kind of really look at web application security as a thing that really needs to be addressed. Uh, do you see that that is starting to mature, that organizations are taking it seriously to think, that a web application is as critical to their business and take the risks around it more seriously than they would say like an internal server? Uh, I would say we're definitely seeing an increased focus on application security, especially on the enterprise side and, you know, companies that are heading towards enterprise size. And, And I think, you know, as you mentioned, the the COVID-19 backdrop to all of this basically is causing the vast majority of uh, many businesses around the world to now suddenly have a lot more work from home staff, either putting more resources um, against their VPN, um, more kind of cybersecurity challenges in the sense that like, if you, if you hadn't already got to the point where you believe the perimeter was dead, it's, it's definitely long past dead at this point. And so couple that with the digitization of effectively all businesses, you know, now the custom software that they write is, is critical to the business and critical to their revenue streams. So um, we're definitely seeing a kind of a, a increased focus on application security. Which, which always is kind of an interesting thing for me because I always find that, yes, people want to, and you can, you can scale, build, and put these things up very quickly uh, with relatively low friction compared to what, you know, what we had to deal with in the late 90s, early 2000s with standing up a server just to get maybe one application deployed. Now you can do it in you know, literally minutes. But you know with some of that, there comes that risk where maybe security is not always built in, even from the developer side where secure coding is still i don't know sometimes i don't feel like it's it's given maybe necessarily priorities that it can be but where do you see that kind of is that starting to get more traction let's say where developers are starting to build in security and really kind of making security by design um i think the progress on that front has been slower than we'd all like but i think there has been progress um i i think that you know, we don't see a pattern yet where developers are driving the security purchase, let's say, but we do see a pattern where developers are engaged in the trial process and engaged in the procurement of security solutions because they are ultimately the end customer, even if they are not the the people who raised their hands and said that they want to go get it or, you know, started driving the trial process, they are certainly now engaged in in the process and they're most certainly affected by the outcomes and so i think it's it's happened a little slower than we'd all like but i think there it's definitely been improving and what do you, i mean do you think it's more of a cultural challenge where developers still don't think of security is it more maybe more of a fault of security leadership or product development teams that look at it as an inhibitor you know what what still kind of remains to be that hurdle where it's 
you know, maybe not happening as fast as we want it all to happen? Um, I guess my own hypothesis would just be that the the developer, especially on an individual level, is kind of being held accountable towards deadlines, not really being held accountable towards security. Um, but maybe, um, maybe even the team they're on is being again held accountable to deadlines, not security. But eventually, the more you roll up to the organization level, whether it's the CIO or the CISO, it's it's definitely accountable probably first and foremost to security and features second. But but I think within the engineering teams, it's flipped the other way. And so I think um, there's a bit of a tension there. I, th- I think it's healthy though, but but I think what, what gives me kind of hope for the future is that it used to be that application security teams maybe would go purchase, trial, procure, and kind of mandate and now that that isn't really the pattern we see time in time out, what we're seeing is maybe application security teams are in the driver's seat and you know get the process going, but it's development teams who are very much engaged and participating in the process, and, and certainly they're affected by the outcome. And well, like an easy example would be, you know, it's no longer just the AppSec team looking at a report in the the web portal or console, but it's also, you know, tickets being created in JIRA for the developers to go fix the issues. So, so I think there's a lot of improvement, but it, it has gone a little slower than I think the security industry would like. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, there's definitely that, that accountability and transparency that, that goes along with it. You know, certainly when you can ticket it and it's recorded that things weren't done, kind of elevated. And one of the things that I've seen with that too is that, you know, development teams that know that they're trying to integrate security into it or have at least a, you know, a, a security specialist as part of their team kind of push some of this stuff up that somebody at a certain level above them has to accept that risk if they're not going to possibly identify a discovered vulnerability. Um, do you see that having an effect or at least encouraging some of that where it's, you know, maybe kind of pushed up some of that risk where it's not just sitting on the shoulders of the dev team? Yeah, I, th- I think when um, flipping the other direction, it's like if you do push all the risk to the dev team and if you do start, you know, blocking builds for any security defect found regardless of the risk level, I, I think that kind of thing, you know, doesn't last within an organization long because, I mean, if no other reason, maybe there's open source libraries that are used by the code and they're changing all the time and new known vulnerabilities are being discovered all the time and, it, it's hard to keep up with, especially if you're doing fields every day, because if you're, let's say you're doing continuous integration and continuous deployment, but then, you know, there's some known vulnerability that was just released in a library that you embed. Um, it's hard to block a build on that and block, you know, potentially fixes for customer support issues to, to reach production, um, especially if you haven't even had time yet to triage you know, whether your software is actually affected by it or not. So I, I think all in, all in all, I think the net of it would be that there does need to be some level of, you know, assess what's there, but but manage the risk. It's not just a, a hard block at all for each and every issue. And, and I think the more mature teams, that's the kind of thing we see with our customers where, um, they do embed security within the development process, but but there is some level of business risk acceptance, um, you know, for especially for non-critical issues. Mm. And what are some of your thoughts on you know, when 
when this stuff is discovered kind of existentially, where there's external security researchers identify things, you know, there's always this discussion of you know, what does responsible uh, vulnerability disclosure look like? And certainly a lot of this came into light with some of the things with uh, not, uh, with um, uh, Zoom, where, you know, there was you know, a level, I would say, of responsible disclosure, but there was also a lot of hyperbole that built around it. You know, how do we as an industry help message these things when we find it in somebody else's product in a way that is meaningful and doesn't necessarily just create a new, you know, website for me as a security researcher to, you know, plant a flag and, and make myself look cool about? Yeah, I think it's a, a tricky problem. I think, um, you know, not touching on Zoom specifically, but just if you imagine uh, a piece of software like Zoom or, or anything like it that suddenly has explosive growth, you know, the same people who are looking to kind of make a name for themselves by finding security bugs in something, you know, are just automatically attracted to trying to find a security defect in some hot new application. And, and that's just on the potentially responsible disclosure side, I would say certainly on the side of like malicious people who want to do bad things. Similarly, if they suddenly see some uh, newer piece of software or kind of immature security piece of software that um, suddenly has explosive growth and millions of users and um, is just flooded, then those people also gravitate towards attacking that thing. And, and I think... Uh, platform usage or just number of people <laughs> but the two things that generally drive attacks is you know what's the importance of, of the thing like, like a bank having money or something like that and the, the second thing would be you know how much usage does it have like how how big is the platform or the software or um, you know how many people use it to these kinds of things and so it doesn't surprise me that you know, the whole world switching to use Zoom attracts all sorts of people, um, both of the on the responsible side and on the irresponsible side. Sure. And, you know, again, is there, you know, what do you like to see, you know, as a good process? You know, some, some folks said, well, look, you know, if we, if we, if we don't do this type of research and then these things never get discovered, but it seems to be this middle ground where, okay, if you find something, you notify the company, you give them a certain amount of time and then kind of, ping them a couple times so you're just not dropping zero days all over the place but is that you know is there a good business balance you know that maybe as a company I'm, I'm excited to have people you know go out and do these things if they're telling me that hey they found something is there you know, do things like bug bounties and other types of incentives work I, I think they do seem to be working because um I think that's certainly applying just economics to the security problem and you know, if a company doesn't care about security whatsoever, uh, eventually that will get figured out and they won't have customers. And so I think, lo and behold, every organization on some level definitely cares about security if for no other reason than pre preserving revenue streams and customers. And so if you accept that they care and they would like to do a good job, then there's lots of ways they can do that. They can um, go procure commercial software, they can hire people, they can use open source software, they can do bug bounties, they can um, have an easy way for people to communicate with them if they find a bug. I think lots of things like that they can do. And you know, generally the more the better. And you know, the more 
the more they make it easy for, let's say, the security community to participate in the process, the, I think the better for the company um, because, you know, it's, it's more eyes um, on, on the security of the application and they, they, should ben- they should be able to benefit from it and their customers should be able to benefit from mm-hmm. it. You know, one of the things you touched on earlier that I want to come back to was you know talking about you know things like artificial intelligence, maybe uh, assisted machine learning or machine learning. You know, how do you see that helping security teams in general kind of address a lot of these problems? I mean, certainly we we see things scaling up in certain areas, and we can't always throw enough people at the those types of problems. So, where does you know newer technology like that kind of help um, security practitioners? Yeah, I think AI is very helpful. I think. Um... That's certainly one of the the more interesting like technological developments, even separate from cybersecurity. Uh, White White Hat ourselves, we actually released a, a study at uh, RSA based on a survey of 102 in- industry professionals at RSA, and what what we found was that nearly 60 percent of people surveyed are actually more confident in cyber threat findings verified by humans than over AI, which, which I think is interesting because here you have a, an industry event where basically every company would probably claim they either use AI or they are an AI company, yet the people surveyed are actually saying they have more confidence in people than AI. Um, so I think there's some level of kind of immaturity with the AI, but but I would also say what we found in our survey was um, 70% of respondents agreed that AI-based tools made their cybersecurity teams more efficient by eliminating over 55% of the mundane tasks. So I think today the AI benefit as it, as it relates to cybersecurity is, or at least how it's perceived in the market among industry professionals would be that it's it's immediately beneficial right now for eliminating uh, the easier, more mundane things, but then you can get derive more value out of the human element, which was the, the focus of RSA this year, where basically if you can blend uh, people and AI by putting people on the harder things and AI on the easier things, that, that basically customers get the, the most ROI or benefit out of that, that blend. Yeah, it almost seems that you know things like AI are going to be great enablers for human beings, but not necessarily replacements. That tends to be the the theme that I'm seeing when I talk to more people about it. That there's just there's definitely a lot of things we do in our days. Uh, whether you're a SOC analyst, a CISO, you know, there's fill eight to ten hours of it. There's things that you could automate, script, and by removing those, it gives you more time to do the more meaningful things. Like I guess that's a takeaway that I'm picking up on that. Yeah, I don't see AI replacing um, people who are already here um, or already working on these problems. I just think that if you were to talk to, you know, a large financial customer or a small SMB or, you know, a company building security software, in all cases, they're struggling to find talent. In in all cases, uh, there's more jobs than there are people that they can find uh, to fill them. And so I think... Maybe AI and technologies like it, you know, maybe will reduce the, the pressure of that quite a bit because maybe we can basically have software do things that um, some humans would have done. Um, but I don't think the people, I don't think we're going to see job losses because of AI. I, I think maybe we'll, 
will slow down the hiring a little bit, but but basically the job postings far outpace the actual hiring. So if, if anything, maybe you'll see a little less job postings, but I think ultimately all the cybersecurity companies, all their customers, they're all looking for cybersecurity talent virtually every day of the year. Yeah, and that's that always seems to be a, a big thing that's discussed quite a bit within the industry is that you know there's this talent shortage and you, know, you can throw the numbers around, but inevitably wherever you land on how many or how little we need, there's there's definitely need more people. And wow. you know, one of the things I always find interesting, I like to ask people, where, where do you see those particular areas of growth? That if I'm somebody new entering the industry, you know, where would you kind of direct people to to start or maybe try to focus some of their efforts so they might be kind of joining the next new thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would certainly encourage people to spend time on problems they find interesting. And, you know, maybe that that sounds a little boring, but I guess how I think of it is um, I've always found cybersecurity super interesting. I, I find certain pockets of it more interesting than others. So I've spent a lot of time on, you know, things like malware analysis. I find OT security or industrial control system security, very interesting. I think um, vulnerability management, vulnerability assessments, scanning, application security, software composition analysis, all of these kinds of things I find interesting, but, but there's a whole bunch I don't, like um, identity management, authentication. I, I would say like, you know, wind the clock back 20 years. If you were kind of in, interested in IT security, it definitely felt like you could know each and every facet of it. I would say now, I think the last survey was that there's there's something like 6,000 cybersecurity companies uh, around the world at this point. Um, they're all attacking similar yet different problems. I think it's hard enough, even if you just attend the RSA conference to know what the you know, thousand companies that have booths are, but if you imagine them, the, the 6,000 global companies, it's very hard. And I, th I think that the industry is so so big and there's so many kind of niches or, or sub subjects under it that I, I would encourage people to spend time on whatever they find that is interesting. I mean, certainly some of the, the more trendier topics would be things like DevSecOps or, or AI and ML. Um, you know, some of the, the nation state attack things or OT security. I think that there's a lot that are kind of more topical or more hot, but but I would encourage people to spend time on whatever they find interesting because I think they'll do a better job at it. They'll put in the extra hours. They'll, they'll learn more um, than the average person knows. And, and I would go that route. Gotcha. Yeah, one of the things that I've been, you know, kind of doing some more research on and, and speaking of more publicly is, is try to give some people some guidance is you know, what it means to be a founder. I've started a couple different companies over the years and I see you've done, done a few yourself. Um, you know, what kind of advice would you give to folks that say, Hey, I want to go out there and hang a shingle and start a cybersecurity company. You know, what are the kind of ups and downs that you, you experienced in doing that, that you would kind of give advice to folks? Sure. I think, I think that one's a long topic, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, I, I guess what I would encourage people to do is um, try to engage as many potential customers as early as humanly possible in what it is you're building. 
in. I mean, if I only had one piece of advice, it would be that because uh, I think it's great to have an idea. Um, I think the more of these ideas you have and the longer the years go by, I think the more you'll realize that the idea is not the important thing. The execution of the idea is the important thing. And, you know, when you start executing on the idea, you know, if you do it in a vacuum without talking to potential customers, I think you, you run an enormous risk that you spend who knows how much time building this thing, yet no one wants it, or no one wants it at the price you want to charge, or, or they don't want it without five other things, yet you've run out of money or time to build those five things. And so I would, if I only had one piece of advice, it would be as fast as you, you believe you can get away with it, go talk to customers about what you're building. Uh, you know, probably, I mean, my advice would be to do that before even incorporating the company. Um, like that early um that i guess that would that would be my first suggestion yeah it's 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 funny you know you you kind of almost any anybody that comes up with an idea you end up with a little bit of a bias about how good that idea is right but, right you know and then people might say no but the, the, you have to be open to pivoting I'm, I'm imagining there's times where you've taken an idea but even adjusted it based on the feedback oh definitely and, and i think that doesn't mean your initial idea was bad uh it could just mean you know, it was it was good enough to get you motivated, but then you you pivoted because you met with ten customers and all ten told you, you know, I would like it if you just changed it in this this way. So I, I would say, always be open to feedback and changing. And you know, it's it's certainly possible to build a business that's eventually successful. You know, even if every customer you meet tells you it's wrong, but but I think that. That's certainly a bold assertion because, you know, what, what, what would be implied of, you know, still going through with your idea as is, even in the face of a lot of negative feedback would be that, well, by the time I finish, they'll all come around. And I'm, I'm sure that must have happened in history, but I've never heard of a case like that. <laughs> right. Now, you know, certainly... When there's, I, I've yet to find that perfect uh, how to start a cybersecurity business book. It doesn't seem to be out there yet. But you know, mm. where, was there reference material? What are some of the things outside of our our industry that you look to as maybe guidance to even you know starting that business and, and kind of going down that road? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think maybe one. One kind of unfair advantage I've had in this regard is I've, I do feel I have a atypically good understanding of what companies are out there and what they're doing. And so um, when I've been trying to build my own cybersecurity businesses or, or products or companies, I have not necessarily convinced myself like, hey, this company will IPO one day, this company will make a billion dollars, these kinds of things. I have not. I've not convinced myself. But I, but I have known that the thing I'm building, no one else has. Um, and there's a lot of similar things that people ascribe a lot of value to. And so that's the kind of thing that has given me confidence to, to start the endeavor of, of building the thing. And then I've gone out trying to meet with customers and, you know, 
it, it either resonated with them or it was close enough that, you know, through a small pivot, it then resonated with them. Mm, gotcha. But that, that makes sense. Do you want to touch back on one, one other thing that you mentioned too, was about IOT security. You know, that's certainly a hot topic when we talk about IOT and all these things that are now, mm. whether it's controlling things at your home or controlling something on the factory floor, where, um, I guess, where do you see some of those risks as far as how people are deploying and managing those in, inside their enterprises? Yeah, maybe I'll take the, the OT, operational technology side of that question, is that I think historically, like especially like 10 years back and even further, what you would find is that there were IT networks and there were OT networks and they never talked to each other. They were air-gapped and, you know, you had people who managed the IT network that were completely air-gapped from the people who managed the OT network. They had nothing to do with one another and so on. But I think, um, you know, that all kind of made sense, but it has since changed because nowadays what you'd find on the OT networks is maybe they have human machine interfaces, which, which are basically Windows machines to manage some portions of the OT network. And then those Windows machines need updates or patches, you know, on patch Tuesday. And so what, what I think has happened is you start having less and less air gaps, you have more and more bridge networks. And then on the kind of accountability side of things, instead of the OT team only being accountable towards things like safety or uptime, the CISO is now also accountable for some of these security issues associated with the OT networks. And so I think that that dynamic has changed quite a bit. And yet many of the people under the CISO may not know how that OT technology works or what it's for or um, you know, what's the mission of those teams. And then those, those systems themselves, many of them are, are legacy. They may not have encryption or authentication at all. And they may just have a fundamental premise that nothing's accessing them, yet, yet they're no longer air-gapped. And so um, I think that's, that's just kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, do you think you know the you know there's there different vulnerabilities that lie within them, not just you know, in a bunch of different ways. I say risk actually, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the way that they're designed, coded, or deployed. You know, what are some of the ways that you would think that are good uh, ways to mitigate some of these things? You know, is it periodic? You know, even from the procurement side, can they be updated or <laughs> figure out ways of update them or putting things like segmented networks, you know, what are some good, I guess, hygiene around them as you know, we just, they're still relatively new in, in the ecosystem. Yeah. I think, I think one thing that's interesting is most of the products in this space, I, I think rightly focus on uh, the visibility problem because what's happening is you'll have, let's say the, the CSO's security team, who's kind of now responsible for these OT networks, their security yet they don't really have visibility into them. And so a lot of the OT products that end up getting built are around um, like passive network monitoring to start watching traffic, to start detecting the presence of these devices. And then maybe secondarily start detecting attacks against these devices. So I think um, from the perspective of like the security team at an enterprise that happens to have OT devices, I think, 
focusing on visibility, like what you have, or said another way, the asset management problem. I think that, I think that's where where the maturity curve is, and that's that's where people are starting with. But but I think what's interesting is even on the IT side, you know, asset management has been around forever, yet that that still feels like an unsolved problem in the sense that maybe organizations have a CMDB, but it's it, then they never finish the project of populating it, or they only populated it with critical assets, or at this point it's just out of date and everyone knows it. Do you think that's more of a problem that there, you know, we, we still, there's so many organizations I work with where they're still tracking assets in multiple areas. You know, there might be some, let's say, help desk ticketing, assist, ticketing system that has some asset inventory. They might have a vulnerability management system that has some asset inventory. And ultimately, then they're dumping it out to a spreadsheet and trying to merge it all together. Is it is it still because it's such a manual process um, that makes, you know, the, the, the kind of key, most basic thing so difficult? Yeah, I, th- I think part of it is, you know, disparate systems. And another challenge is depending on which organization you're talking to, they may do a lot of M&A or, or they may even exit businesses regularly. And so all of these kinds of activities cause the list of assets to fluctuate. And then on the container side, those would be like ephemeral assets that, you know, may only live for minutes. Um, even on the public cloud side, maybe you'd have an EC2 instance in Amazon that only lives for 30 days. So ideally what you'd want is an asset management system that provides a real-time view, Um, but but most organizations use spreadsheets. That's very much not (laughs) real-time. That that continues to be the problem after gosh, how many years? But uh, Anthony, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you online? Um. I'm on LinkedIn, and I guess I'm available over email. That, that That's pretty much it for me. Gotcha. Well, I will be sure to put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can reach out to you. And uh, I, again, thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.